Today we look at the source of future oil and gas. We'll be looking in particular at the industrial process of extracting underground sources of gas, a process which was once economic but in today's energy crisis has led to new options. You'll have heard about this as fracking. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. And just as the government has issued licences to drill in many places across the UK, so too there have been protests in the UK. While none of us wants the landscape to be spoiled or whatever, today's show is devoted to wising up to what fracking is. And to do that, we could do no better than to look to the USA, which is years ahead of the UK with fracking. Today you'll hear at length from someone in the industry about how it works. In Cambridge. Well, our show today is all about the process of getting fuel out of the ground, and there are lots of issues around our topic. Green issues, sustainability issues, but today we're going to look at how the process works. It used to be, at least from the movies we've seen, that people would find a source of oil, drill a hole, and oil would gush to the surface. Using that oil to power machinery was what started the Industrial Revolution. Getting oil then was easy, or relatively. But it's been a long time that a type of rock called shale, which holds large amounts of oil and gas, has been known about. Shale is a sedimentary rock, something you should have learned at school, which is formed from mud, silt, clay and organic matter and stuff. The grain of this shale is quite fine, so it's not very permeable. So to get the gas out of it, it needs to be cracked open to make it more permeable. And that's achieved by pumping millions of litres of water down a hole. In the USA, at least 2 million oil and gas wells have been hydraulically fractured. 95% of their oil and gas wells are being hydraulically fractured or fracked. These wells account for 70% of the natural gas produced. Which is quite a lot. Today's guest is Matt Bruff of Altila Incorporated, who works in the industry. He is concerned especially with the water when it comes back up out of the oil well. His company processes water from the well and, as he'll explain, they let the solids in the water settle and then they desalinate the water with a low-energy process. Yeah, Matt was visiting Cambridge from the USA this summer, so we took this opportunity to speak with him. We had quite a long chat and learned quite a lot about the industry. So, let's listen now as Roger starts by asking Matt to introduce his company. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Altella Incorporated. It is a wastewater treatment technology and services company based out of the United States, specifically uh, Denver, Colorado. You handle the wastewater that comes from the process of fracking. Uh, Altella's uh, core products are a desalinization platform that specializes in highly challenged wastewaters in multiple industries. Particular industries we've been addressing the last uh, eight years is the wastewater associated with oil and gas development. Mm -hmm. And there's basically uh, two types, the production water that comes out of these wells when you're producing oil and gas Mm -hmm. that basically run the life of the well. And then recently here, over the last decade, there's been a, a lot of activity where people started fracturing these wells to release some of the uh, oil and gas that has heretofore been unable to be um, withdrawn from the ground in these tight shale basins. 
and they've had some very good success in getting this resource out of these basins that prior to they weren't able to do. Okay. So take us back to how we used to get oil out of the ground and how we now are looking forward to getting gas and oil out of the ground. So we're not uh, the oil and gas experts, but just by being close to it over these last eight years, uh, the different phases, initially these oil and gas reservoirs, you could put a well into them and they were actually operating under pressure where they would lift the oil or the gas right out of the ground by themselves. Then later, when those kind of low-lying fruits had been exhausted, you had to start pumping this oil or gas out of these uh, wells. But it was more your traditional vertical well where picture a straw going straight down into the ground Mm -hmm. into that resource. Mm -hmm. Recently, then, they started to explore some of these shale formations where they knew that there was a lot of oil and gas tied up in these shale beds, but it just wasn't able to, you know, stick a, a pipe or a well into those and extract kind of a reservoir, if you will. So they've been exploring initially there in the Bakken Basin there in Texas how to put um, a lot of water and sand and put it under pressure to pressure up that shale, which helps expand the shale, and then some type of a propent. Uh, the propent's often been used as sand. Mm-hmm. When that pressures up, the sand goes into those crevices, keeps it open, and then therefore allowing the uh, either oil or gas to flow from many, many of these little crevices and be able to uh, extract that from these shale basins that up until even seven, eight years ago, weren't economically able to be uh, withdrawn from. Okay, so there's, there's oil and gas somewhere in that shale, but it's spread over a wider... Exactly. It's, just, it's not sitting there in a sump that you could just draw. Exactly. And what they've done, as you said, they put water and sand down. Do they pump it down? Okay, they, um, they pump it under great pressure and uh, send down this water with maybe a surfactant, maybe a lubricant, maybe a sand or some type of bead to keep open these pores. And by doing that, uh, they're able to extract this from the ground. Okay. Over here in the UK and the Isle of Wight, there have been lots of proposals to start exploring for shale gas. People generally are protesting in the US. It's much more established. So has there not been opposition in the States as well? Increasingly so. A couple trends that we've seen just with our business and basically being a service provider, taking this dirty water when it comes back out of the ground, mm-hmm. it needs to be managed, handled, and, and disposed of in an uh, environmentally sustainable way. A couple trends. These wells um, that have been fracked are not just vertical wells. To drill these horizontal wells, we have very, very long laterals going horizontally through these different shale veins. And initially, in some of these shale basins, they would use 2 million gallons of water pumped down hole. Mm -hmm. Then it started creeping up as these laterals got longer and longer on these horizontal wells, and they can actually turn the actual pipe and bend it, if you will, to go out horizontally for uh, great distances. Now, in some of these shale basins, they're using as much as 8 to 10 million gallons of water to frack with per well. Now, when they send that down under great pressure, a lot of that gets soaked into the pores. Sure. Depends on the basin, but anywhere from 10 to 30% of that initial volume will come back to the surface. And when that comes back to the surface, you need to do something with it. So even the last five years, there's been a lot of change here in the United States just because of the, the relatively large volume of water. 
initially in some of these shale basins, they were allowing it to be diluted and put back into some of the surface bodies, as they had traditionally done on some of the more historic vertical wells. But because of the larger volume, a lot of regulations have been passed where they now want it to be treated to a very high level so that if it does go into a stream or a body of water in the U.S., these requirements require it to be 500 milligrams per liter in total dissolved solids. It's basically drinking water standards. Yeah. I mean, there's a great cost to that, to be able to desalinate and take out the chlorides, the sulfate, and some of those solids from that water. So surely these protestations that have taken place have helped bring in controls to make sure that the levels that you're talking about are set and adhered to? I think the issue has gotten a lot of visibility and there's been, you know, a lot of heated debate. You know, one of the big issues is can the fracking contaminate groundwater and can that have some type of a hydrologic connection between the groundwater tables? In addition, in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency has often felt like the reinjection wells were the disposal method of choice. And there's been some interesting developments there recently here in the States where um, um, there's a lot of research going on right now, but some of these reinjection wells, which is basically take this water and reinject it into a different well to where it originally came from. Um, but now there's been some thoughts that that might be creating some micro seismic activity. So there's been a lot of uh, research and due diligence on when these wells that are also under pressure, these reinjection wells, are they actually causing some of this micro seismic activity that have been showing up in some of these basins? We'll let the geologist and the scientist uh, flush that out. But just kind of from an issue spotting point of view, that's an issue that is getting some review here in the States. You mentioned a large volume of water that's going down into this well. And then on its way up, it may pass groundwater level, but presumably that pipe should present a barrier. Exactly. If done properly, and there's been a lot of tightening of the regulations requiring that piping casing, the additional casing surrounding it, the cement surrounding it, to make sure that the integrity of that well... You know, obviously, if that well um, has good integrity and it doesn't have any issues, there won't be any communication. There have been instances where uh, some of the folks in the U.S. will say, but when that, you know, fails for whatever reason, then yes, there could be some, uh, some uh, cross-communication, if you will. Tell us um, about how they discovered this shale gas. It seems it's a new thing. It's not a new thing, is it? Correct. There's been for many years now, and the shale really got underway here in the States you know, within kind of the last decade. And some of the new shale basins um, that have been very uh, successful are the Marcellus Basin in the northeastern United States, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, New York, West Virginia. Um, another successful find that they have found is the Bakken. The Bakken uh, Basin is up in North and South Dakota. Okay. A third is the Niobrara kind of in Colorado, where they have a lot of these shale deposits. These shale deposits are rich in gas and uh, condensate and oils. And originally, some of the credit's been given to the Barnett Shale in Texas, where they knew it was down there for, for decades, but it was not able to be economically pulled from the earth because the, the rock strata was just too tight. It's literally layers upon layers of shale. But when they did some um, exploratory work, Uh, Several decades back, they understood that if we could basically send water down under pressure, it would expand all of these little micro faults, you know, in the shale and uh, open up some pores, if you will. And so long as we can put some kind of a propent, in this case, you know, a piece of sand and all of those pores before that pressure gets released, we can kind of keep open all these little cracks, which then allows the oil or the gas to kind of seep through. 
But when there's enough of those little shale pores, there's a very large amount that will actually come out of that. One of the objections that seems to be mentioned in websites which talk about why they don't like fracking is the amount of water that's being used in its case. Although, if we think about it, as we look out to sea, there is a large amount of water in front of us which completely dwarfs those amounts of water. Well, exactly, Roger. It's very. Um, it's a great amount of water, anywhere from, on a low end, 5 million gallons to up to 10 million gallons of water that needs to be uh, sourced, delivered, uh, have some kind of an interim storage capacity next to the well, just a ton of kind of life cycle management requirements. And if you're drilling a, a large pad, mind you that this is a, a well pad that doesn't just have one well. Some okay. of these pads may have as many as 8 to even 16 wells per pad. And these horizontal wells go out of that pad that in and of itself, one would argue, helps because of the disturbance for roads in and out of these pads are mitigated if you only have one pad. Sure. But at 5 to 10 million gallons per well with multiple wells, it's a vast amount of water. But interestingly, there's been some concern in the U.S. about, hey, that's going to you know contribute to the drought that we're seeing in some of these western states. The oil and gas companies are huge um, users in demand of, uh, of, of fresh water in many instances. But when you actually take a step back and you look at the total usage of the water in those jurisdictions, the vast, vast majority of it is actually used for agricultural, municipal, potable type water supplies. And even as big as the numbers sound in the oil and gas industry on a kind of uh, relative basis compared to the other users, it's uh, in the single digits percentage-wise. Was it? You, mean you had some figures, didn't you? Um, agriculture is by far the, the, the highest user, uh, well over half of all the usage. Um, the residential and some of the, just the, the cities and the municipalities, the industrial users will make up a third. And then the pie chart starts to really you know, sliver down to yeah. you know, single digits. Even in a big um, a state like Texas, it's still a very, very small amount related to oil and gas and needs for these frack jobs. Although perhaps we needn't be alarmed by the amount of water, obviously people are worried about the purity of the water that may be sort of coming back. Essentially, that's where your business comes into it. So perhaps you could tell us about what your installation does. Exactly. And I think the U.S. kind of provides an interesting case um, on this shale management because, you know, one can kind of use that as the uh, initial template as, hey, they've done some things absolutely right, right off the bat. Okay. Other things could have improved upon. In Colorado, for example, our company got the first ever permit to put this water that flowed back from a frack well and just a traditional oil and gas well directly into the Colorado River after we treated it. That was the first of its kind but it helped kind of flush out an issue um, that now we, we, we see in many other jurisdictions in other countries as it starts this shale revolution, if you, if you will, starts mm-hmm. to head to these other parts of the world. And that is, well, what's in this water? Yes. And the regulators will say, before we allow it, for example, back to our case, to go be put into the Colorado River, we certainly, on the face, we support good, sustainable processes where you can take this water, this dirty, dirty water, and instead of trucking it great, great miles to either a reinjection well to never be used again, forever taken out of the hydrologic cycle, or in the U.S., you can put it in these big evaporation ponds, which have their environmental challenges, 
sure, public policy-wise, it would be phenomenal to be able to treat that water, purify it, and put it back into the, the hydrologic cycle through, for example, the Colorado River. But obviously, before we can allow that to happen, we need to make sure that it is its purity is such that it is okay to be put into that river. So they would ask questions about what's in the water. And obviously, this was years ago, but back then it was it was not well understood what exactly comes out, what chemicals, if you will, start to be put down whole, which then gets mixed with the groundwater that comes back up in that formation. So the first question the regulators asked is, help us identify what we even need to test for. And once we understand what constituents are in the water, then we can help develop the the requirements to to, uh, allow that to be treated and to eventually be uh, discharged into the streams. But I understand that the essence of your process is desalination. Not to get too detailed into it, but there's a lot of settling as kind of a preliminary stage, some just some gross filtration. Yeah. Then there are some um, processes that are kind of, we call it pre-treatment to remove the actual suspended solids, yeah. the, the TSS. But then obviously the most complicated final portion is what our technology does, which is to take out the dissolved solids, the total dissolved solids, TDS, and that basically is just the uh, the desalinization step that has to be uh, completed to in order to have it to be of a quality sufficient to be put back into surface uh, bodies, whether a stream, a lake, or otherwise. One of the objections was worry about the water being initially stored in open-air pits and volatile hydrocarbons were being released into the atmosphere. Kind of an interesting um, new development here in the States is getting a lot of scrutiny um, from a regulatory point of view is the volatile organic uh, compounds, the VOCs, either the semi-volatile or the volatile. So if you have some of these hydrocarbon, you know, laced waters, these wastewaters, there will be a portion of those VOCs that also come up uh, with the water. In the States, they uh, allow those to be put in these uh, large um, earthen impoundments. Mm-hmm. And various regulations require them to be double-lined and, you know, numerous protection around that. But in the end, the argument is, well, aren't there some VOCs that will have some fugitive emissions off of those impoundments? So the regulators are looking closely into that. The initial feedback has been individually the amount of those VOCs off of, you know, one pond is relatively low um, with respect to some of the chemistry of uh, how water mixes with them. But in a basin where there might be, you know, hundreds and thousands of these impoundments all within one basin, on a more macro view, the emissions data that they are getting is presenting some concern to the regulators, and they're, they're certainly drilling down on that and doing a lot of studies to see if it maybe makes more sense to have a closed tank with a lid on it that will help capture some of these VOCs before they even get uh, admitted at all. That is reassuring. You called it at some point a shale revolution. Presumably the U.S. is looking forward to solving an energy problem. Some things I read say that the contribution of shale gas is trivial. It has been certainly in the United States over the last uh, you know, decade and increasingly even the last two or three years. U.S. government just released a, a study um, mm-hmm. that seemed to uh, indicate to the market that that the surprising spike in production of oil from some of these shale basins like the Bakken up in the Dakotas and how quickly that is ramping up production-wise, some of the estimates are that the U.S., um, to a surprise to many, may even reach energy independence within the next you know, 20 years and, in fact, actually become a net exporter 
um, of some of this oil and uh, natural gas. If that's the case, that would sort of change uh, how the U.S. has uh, dealt with its uh, energy policy. Certainly sounds fantastic. Thank you very much, Matt. Quick pause there. 10 million gallons. Well, that's a lot of water. Although, as Matt said, it's relative to the water used by everyday living and agriculture. Mm-hmm. But things are changing. I talked a bit more with our guest about the use of water for fracking. He pointed to a new trend where the industry was looking into whether they actually needed to use fresh water to fracture the underground shale rock. It seems that the industry was starting to reuse water from previous frackings. Listen here to the last couple of minutes of what's going on. So what's going on? So it's another trend we've seen here in the United States, Roger, that's been of, a, of keen interest to us, is what level of water purity do these oil and gas companies need to frack with? Um, let's say when we started working in this oil and gas uh, area, these companies wanted fresh water, and they would mix the sand and these different uh, surfactants and lubricants in with the fresh water and send it down whole. When that water came back up, it needed to be either purified completely to be able to be reused or strictly disposed of. And then they would require another batch of completely fresh Fresh. water for the next well. Now, that is a great cost, both logistically, storage, having to drive this dirty water great distances to some of these disposal facilities. And the you know majority of the cost of the disposal is not treatment necessarily, it's the transportation. 80% of it is putting it in these tanker trucks and driving it as many as five, six, seven hours to these approved sites to get rid of this water. Altella has several facilities that also do that. Interestingly, the oil and gas industry has done a lot of research and they said, well, how can we recycle some of this dirty water? Do we necessarily need to have 100% fresh water? So maybe perhaps all the water that comes back out of the ground from our first well, we could temporarily store it, minimally treat it, and recycle that down for the next well. If we're able to do that, that's frankly a good thing because we can decrease all of those truck miles, the wear and tear on the roads, and frankly reduce the uh, demand for fresh water sources in these basins. Interestingly, we've seen kind of a trend, and it depends you know, on the, uh, on the nature, the geology that these companies are working with. It also depends on what the company thinks is the best practices, and it depends on how hard it is to locate fresh water so there's multiple variables in place, but we've seen companies that would, you know, even in the last 18 months, Roger, you know, drastic change in their protocols. They would say we have to have 20,000 TDS water or cleaner to frack with. Well, now they'll say maybe we can actually use 40,000 milligrams per liter. And more recently, we've seen some companies that said, actually, if we remove some of the suspended solids, we're okay to you know, recycle this water as high as 100,000 milligrams per liter. And if that is the case, that's having some very distinct uh, ramifications to both the disposal industry, the freshwater sourcing side of the house, as well as even the water treatment side. Therefore, that water is more heavily contaminated than originally was. Exactly, exactly. So normally when they might say, hey, we've uh, fracked with this once, and now it's coming to these disposal facilities at 30,000 milligrams per liter. Basically, they... um, the same amount as salt water in the oceans. Now they might be able to reuse that two, three, four times, and when they're ready to eject it out of the system for ultimate disposal, mm-hmm. it may be coming in 180, 200,000 milligrams per liter. 
representing an almost fully saturated salt brine in many instances. And that's creating uh, both good opportunities, but also challenges, depending on if you're on the sourcing side or the disposal side. Yeah, I can see that. So thanks there to Matt Bruff of Altila Incorporated, and they're based in Denver and Albuquerque. And thank you too, Matt, for taking time off of your Cambridge holiday. So now, what do you think? Well, it's good to hear a first-hand story about the new shale gas and its processes. There's a lot more below the surface, oh, as it were. Oh, <laughs> funny. Though I think we'd better add that shale gas, as it's called, is not a new gas. It's basically the same hydrocarbon fuels we've been getting all these years from the North Sea of Britain. So, methane, ethane, propane, mm-hmm. butane, the, the, the gas tap gas yep. and the bottle gases that we'd use for barbecues. Yeah. So, as well as the same old gas idea, the fracking is not a new process. Depends on whether you've heard about it before. Meaning? Well, fracking has been around for more than 60 years, surprisingly. (laughs) And fracking going on in the North Sea oil fields has been going on for 30 years. And no one said or heard a thing about it. We've been using shale gas from other easier types of shale where the shale was already fractured or broken up. What's new is that modern technology can fracture the shale that's deep down in the well hole. And it's a very expensive process. But but I suppose the cost of oil these days has made the cost worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So the odd thing is that fracking has only risen to frame in maybe the last eight years. And indeed, as they propose to do it in land. Surely there must be some valid objections to fracking in our countryside. Indeed there are. Though I'd imagine that if we'd found oil in the fens, I wonder how we would respond bond to that i mean would we say yeah rub our hands together or what for example people in the usa are perhaps more used to having regular oil wells which they've had ages but Mm. as soon as somebody says new process there's a reaction to it and to me it seems like a reaction to something new and sciencey and me well i'm just a bit biased towards things that are new and sciencey and if there's a problem with it i'll wonder how it can be fixed and if not I'm going to shout no. Okay, so what are the worries? Well, I looked up some just in preparation, and as a quick list, one concern is that the water used might be contaminated by chemicals and it it might pick up substances on its way up through the layers of earth. Another is that the cement pipes which protect the groundwater might leak at one point. Another is that maybe the rock fractures might make their way to the surface. Or there might be small earthquakes. So a more real concern, actually, is having a great source of energy. We might then take our eye off the target for developing alternative fuels and being frugal with our use of carbon-based fuels. Well, I'm I'm sure there's an expert out there who'd love to come and talk to us about that. Well, for now, thanks for that, Roger. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Neil Ainsby. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.